this Sunday night, Psalm 19 is where we'll be. If I was walking around carrying my Coke Zero, which says super fan on the side of it, and I were to stumble and trip or you were to bump me and I were to spill, what would come out of the can? Coke Zero, not Diet Coke. They're entirely different and I can tell the difference. Now, why is that? And the answer is, of course, because that's what's in the can. And so when you spill it, what comes out of it is what is in there, of course, correct? Tea does not come out of there. Milk does not come out of there. Uh, Diet Coke, fortunately, does not come out of there because it's not what's in there. If you were to, as you're minding your own business, bump into God, what comes out of God? Or to say it differently, because as we learned earlier, God predates creation. So when God reveals what is inside of himself, when God spills over to the world, so to speak, what comes out of him? And the answer that scripture gives is grace. Grace is what comes out of God. Grace is what is inside of God. God by nature is life-giving. God by nature is generative. He gives life. And so all of his interactions with everything in the world, with everyone in the world, with everybody in the world, it's all predicated on the fact that God by nature is filled with grace. This is how Jesus says it. Well, John 1, verse 14, John speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. So God's glory, of course, is who he is. We've seen it. We've seen it in the son because he's from the father and the son is full of grace and truth. They're paired together. He's full of grace and truth. From his fullness, though, John goes on to say, from the fullness of God. In other words, this idea that God is overflowing. He's filled to the top and God's overflowing into the world. We have all received, John says, grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And this is a very critical point to understand when you come to the concept of Psalm 19, when you come to the concept of education, when you come to the concept of creation, is that all of God's interaction with the world is predicated on grace. Why did God make the world? He made the world to share himself with the world. He made the world so that he could reveal himself. God made the world so that he could pour over into the world for our good and for his glory. And so every interaction with God is the beginning point of it is that God reveals himself to us. God did not need to create us. And I really hope you understand that. God did not have to make us. Why did God make the world? And some might say God made the world because he was lonely. Lonely God up there. Lonely God, just needing somebody or some things to entertain him or to keep him happy. And so he made us so that we can now, you know, diversify God's life. (laughs) And that might get smithed up more theological sounding and some explanations of it. But the bottom line of that kind of answer is that that God made the world because he had a Jesse shaped hole in his heart. (laughs) He just he just needed me. And he was so bored up there just with the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect love, companionship, fellowship and harmony. But. He needed us. 
And I don't think that's the answer the Bible gives that he made the world because he needed us. Of course not. The answer the Bible gives is he made the world to share himself. He made the world to magnify himself. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. It's no sign of a fountain's weakness that is prone to overflow its banks. A fountain overflows. By nature, a fountain is overflowing. It's giving out water. It's giving out life. God, by nature, is a fountain. He's giving off life. And as life comes out of him, it goes to a world he creates just to receive it. That does not mean that God is arrogant or egotistical. I've had somebody tell me once, you know, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because he made the world just to make people worship him. You know, how shallow is God that he would need worshipers? And also not understanding it adequately. He made the world to share himself and he is the greatest thing in the world. And so there's nothing better for him to do for us and to make us so that we can share in his glory as well. You know, if a philanthropist were to give billions of dollars away, nobody would say, how arrogant is that guy? (laughs) Who does he think he is with all his philanthropic ways, giving away millions of dollars here and billions of dollars there? I mean, how shallow is he that he thinks he has to give his money away to find significance in life? Nobody would say that. Instead, you would say, thank you. That's really the only thing you can say. Thank you for sharing. That's so kind of you. And so it is with God. When God gives himself away, he's not egotistical. He's not arrogant. He's not in need of an ego trip. No, he's benevolent and he gives himself away. That's a key starting point before we look at Psalm 19. Because when you understand that, you understand that every interaction with God begins with the fact that God is sharing himself, which he does not have to do. He didn't, he was under no obligation to share himself. It's by his nature he desires to. And so he makes us to receive himself. And so what he does first before he made you is he made the world. He made the sky and the sun. And also before he made you, he made the birds and the plants and the snails, more on them later, and fish. And then he made animals. And then he made people. Now, why did he make those things? He made us and all of creation to reveal himself, that he is by nature gracious and life-giving. And particularly, you have to appreciate God's grace as the foundation of this, because there is no way you could learn about God if he didn't reveal himself. And if that's too theoretical for you, let me say it this way. There's no way you could learn about God if he didn't make you. If you didn't exist, you couldn't learn about him. So he he made you, but that's not the first thing he did. First, he made the universe and then he made you. So both the universe and you were made to reflect the glory of God, to receive the glory of God. And you were not there because the universe predates you. You were not there when he made it. And so there is no way for you to discover any truth about creation, any truth about the universe, unless he also reveals it to you. Kind of the, 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 the humorous aside that Abigail shared earlier about the ranking the 17 things at creation. There's a little bit of humor in that, in that there's a lot of guesswork is going on there. You know, some evolutionary theorists say we can get back to, you know, the 
precise nanosecond, a fraction of an exponential power of a nanosecond after the Big Bang, but we can't go further than that. And so we're left with these different atoms and par particles and molecules and light waves that are all functioning. We can't quite get them sorted out. The truth is, if we're being honest, the scientific method stops being helpful when you're dealing with the Big Bang. It's not something that can be replicated and observed in a laboratory. You can't make a hypothesis about it, do it, observe it, and extract information and reason to a conclusion because you weren't there. So for you to know anything about creation, it has to be shared with you by the person who was there. Now, why would God share that kind of information with you? Are you on a need to know basis with him? <laughs> Do you need to know why he created the world? Do you need to know what order things happen in the order of the first days? Do you need to know that? Well, he shares that information with you because he is gracious. He's doing it to help us out. And thus there is the need for education in the world. In that the whole world is declaring the glory of God. The whole world is revealing his gracious nature. The whole world is giving insight into God that you have to be taught because of sin. You're not born in this world knowing it. You have to be educated. You have to be taught how the world magnifies the glory of God. You don't just figure it out. You have to be taught. And so the foundation for education is this concept of grace, that God is a revealer by nature and he wants to reveal himself to us. And he does that not because we deserve it. He does that through his grace. And so if you think that theology or that Bible or the knowledge of God should be confined to Bible class and not to all classes, boy, do I have a Psalm for you. <laughs> Psalm 19, to the choir master, Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man. He runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. This first part of the Psalm basically reveals one thing to us. This will be the first point in your outline. Common grace, common grace. God, because he's gracious, reveals himself to the world. And he does that through two different categories of grace. The first category of grace described in the Psalm is common grace that he reveals to the whole world. It's called common grace because you don't need to be a Christian to experience common grace. But that doesn't mean that non-Christians experience common grace to its full potential or as knowingly as they ought. In other words, common grace, it cannot save you. Nobody gets saved from common grace, but common grace can teach you and it can teach you about God. And there's nothing greater to learn about. Education then must be rooted in this basic fact that the world is designed to reveal God's glory and that as you study the world, which is what these first six verses are about, you are connecting everything back to God's glory you don't fully understand something, anything in this world, 
anything in this world. You don't understand it fully until you understand how it connects back to God's glory. That is true in literature, it is true in mathematics, it is true in science. You only fully understand something or even adequately understand something when you can connect it back to how it reveals God. And you can take anything as elementary as basic mathematics. Why does two plus two equal four? What does that reveal about God? And the answer is it reveals that God is a God of order because God made a world where there is stability. God made a world where there is reason. God made a world where there is order. As a punishment in a psychology class, I'm not sure if it was actually designed as punishment when I was in college, but I took it that way. I had to read a philosophical book arguing against the nature of mathematics. Arguing that there is no grounds for mathematics to work. That the whole concept of mathematics is just an arbitrary function. It's all a mirage that humans have just kind of agreed to entertain to make life worth living. The guy never did adequately argue against why like airplanes work or things, you know, that require mathematics to actually work in the real world. So I didn't give it a lot of credence, but I filed it away in my mind because it is a fascinating little insight into the world that you don't understand math until you understand how it reveals God's character. And if you reject God's character, then you're going to end up writing a book about how math doesn't work. (laughs) Math works because God is a God of stability and a God of order and a God who wants to be discovered. He wants you to learn about his creation. He wants you to learn about the world. You only fully understand and appreciate something in literature when you understand how it reflects the complex way that God made people and and human nature and even sin and righteousness and wickedness. That you understand how some worldviews are are flawed because they're sinful and lead to suffering and destruction like you read about in Proverbs 2 earlier today. I know other virtues even in a non-Christian worldview are Estimable. They are notable and praiseworthy because they reflect the character of God. Everything in the world can only be understood when it is reasoned in your mind back to how it reveals God's character and God's nature because that's why it was made. Failure to connect something you learn back to God's glory is not education. It's like trying to swim without water. Can you do that? No. It's called floundering. There's a word for it, floundering. Trying to drive without a road. Trying to fly without an airplane. Trying to breathe without air. Or to use more biblical analogies, trying to read without words. You can't read without words. In the same way, you can't learn something without connecting it back to God's glory. Trying to live without life. Nothing is understood until it's connected back to God's glory. This is what Romans 1 means when God made his creation evident to all people. And this is where Psalm 19 begins. The heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, that's just a verse that we all know. We've read it so many times that we lose the gravity of what it's saying. I mean, just pause for a second and marvel at the fact of what David just declares as self-evident. The heavens declare God's glory. I and mean, what are they doing up there? What are the stars doing in the sky? I mean, they're shining and they're, they're flickering and, and that kind of cool. And you can look at them with telescopes and you can make animals out of them and all that. That's not their main function. It's not to tell you that you're going to be hardworking and studious yet with a rebellious streak. That's not the function of the stars. The function of the stars is to reveal God's glory. The heavens are declaring it. They're talking right now. 
That word declare, it's a vocal word in Hebrew. The heavens are speaking. And what are they saying? They're doing the best they can to tell you that God is gracious and kind and holy and a creator. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now you've moved from declaring to proclaiming. This is a statement of fact. It's like an argumentative word. The heavens are arguing with you. They're shouting down with you. This reminds me of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah, where Yahweh and Jeremiah calls the heavens to bear witness about the futility of sinners on earth and the absurdity of people sinning against God. Even the stars know it's absurd. Here, David just says, the sky is up there proclaiming that God is an incredible creator. That word handiwork, God weaves things together with beauty. Listen, it's not trite to see a beautiful sunset and go, God is just a, a beautiful God. God is a majestic God. What a creator God is that he can make a beautiful sunset. And we sometimes, I, you know, even in my own heart, I sometimes roll my eyes when I hear that kind of line, like God is a master painter. I'm like, it's a sunset, it's cute and all, but, and then I realize that's my own sin. I mean, what is this guy doing up there? It is telling you that God is a masterful artist. That's what this verse says. That God can make a sunset like nobody's business. <laughs> This happens every day, verse two says. Day to day pours out speech. Listen, if there are stars over your head, you should know the glory of God. If there is a new day before you, you should know the glory of God. Now, David has moved on from saying that they're declaring, they're proclaiming. Now he's saying they won't shut up. <laughs> the days just keep talking. Like I heard you yesterday, day. No, it's got new things to say. It's a new day. There's new ways to declare God's glory. There's new ways to declare God's beauty. It's a new day. It's a new day. Night after night reveals knowledge. If, if you're tired of hearing about God, you think, well, when the day is over, at least I can go to sleep and not hear about him. Oh no, my friends. <laughs> the night is talking to you. The night reveals God's power. This goes all the way back to Genesis 1 where he divides the, the day and the night. He divides the light and the darkness, the dry ground from, from the waters. He, he splits things. He makes divisions there and both sides of the division declare his glory. Constantly talking. It's telling you that God, and this is everything in the world is telling you that God is precious, that God is incredible, that he can do things that you cannot imagine. I was reading... A couple weeks ago in Rwanda, there's something called a parasitic snail. There's a complex word for it, a parasite that takes over a snail's body. The English word, all the English speakers just call it a zombie snail, a zombie snail. And what happens is there's a parasite that moves into the snail. This parasite can only live inside of a snail, only live inside of a snail, but it can only reproduce inside of a bird. And the problem is that the birds it reproduces inside of don't eat the snails that it lives inside of. Do you see this age old snail dilemma? So this parasite invades a snail's body, worms its way up to the, you know, I don't know what that word is, the antennas of the snail, then engorge themselves on the snail and turn this pulsating like hippie-ish 60s are calling kind of color and it looks like a caterpillar that's tie-dyed in the snail's antenna and the bird that this parasite reproduces inside of doesn't eat snails but you know what does eat tie-dyed caterpillars and so it eats the snail and the parasite reproduces in the bird's intestines and 
drops out of the bird and is eaten by new snails on the ground. The cycle of a snail's life right there. What in the world does that teach you? I don't know. I'm open to suggestions. It's, <laughs> it's pretty cool though. For starters, it teaches you the absurdity of evolution because that's the kind of thing that has to, you know, co-locate, co-evolve involving three different species at the same time and any of them gets it wrong, it all goes wrong. It teaches you that God is just incredible in his design. Incredible. Just a basic thing. You're supposed to look at the zombie snail and go, wow, wow. Who comes up with this? God comes up with this. God comes up with this. What does something teach you about God? What does it teach you about sin? What does it teach you about the beauty of the world? I'll tell you the days after days are talking about this kind of stuff. Verse three, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. This is a complicated thing to translate in Hebrew. And I like the way the ESV did it because it just says at the beginning of it, there's a low in front of it, no in Hebrew. There's no speech, no words. Earlier it said there's speech and speech and words and words. And now it just says there actually is no speech. They're not using actual words is the point. But their voice goes everywhere. If the star is above your head, you can hear this. If the sun is on your horizon, you can hear this. If you have a snail in your garden, you can hear this. It's constantly talking to you. And it's not even using actual words, but their voice is heard everywhere. In fact, verse four says, their voice goes to the very ends of the earth. The very ends of the earth. You can't get away from this. Jesus says, God shows his love for the world by causing the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. If rain falls on you, you know God loves you because he didn't need to make the world that way. He didn't need to make the world so it rains, the water, the hydrological cycle where the river flows to the ocean and evaporates to the clouds and then rain falls down on you. And what are you supposed to learn about that? That God provides for you is what you learn. If you've been in a place that doesn't have running water, doesn't have streams. You see families that dig wells. You see families that dig water, have to carry water canisters for miles. You know what God does? He causes it to rain. How kind of him. He did not need to do that. And it was not always that way, by the way. It was not raining before the flood. It's a little thing that God put in the world to make the world livable, to make rainbows awesome. Totally cool. All that knit together for you. This is David's point. It's voices everywhere. Physics works because God wants the world to be discovered and God wants the world to be discovered so that you learn more about him. You don't understand farming until you understand that God made a world with seasons in it. You don't understand farming until you understand that food is supposed to be good, right? God made a world with some good food in it and you did not evolve to appreciate good food. It's just a gift from God. You know, fruit pre-exists you. How great is that? That God made a world with orange juice. It's really neat that it tastes good. You think all that goes into orange juice, like those capsules that fill up with water and through the photosynthesis, they become sweet and they take a skin on the outside so it falls off the tree and doesn't get damaged and you can squeeze it and you can drink it and you go, mm, orange juice. Isn't God kind? There is no evolutionary reason for that to work. It just is. God is so kind. The world, the whole world is like that. Their voice to the end of the world, it says. Verse four, through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them, speaking of the world, he has set a tent for the sun. So now there's this image of us being like we live in a big tent and the sun going by in the sky. 
The sun runs across the sky, it says in verse five. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving his, his bridal chamber. He's, he's happy, he's like a strong man. He's gonna run his course with joy. He's running up the stairs. He's carrying his new bride with him. He's excited, he's happy. Have you ever seen a groom on his wedding day be sad? I hope not. <laughs> you know, the door opens and there's the bride coming down the aisle. And if you look up and the groom's just like, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know. Ah, <laughs> run then, bride. <laughs> no, the groom is happy. And that's, the, that's why David uses this analogy. So happy. I was at a, a wedding recently where the groom was fresh out of the hospital. He had to get sprung out of the ER to get to the wedding. He's there ripping off his hospital band, filling out the IV thing. And the bride opens the door and you see the smile. That's the way God made the world. How cool is that? And this is the analogy for the sun in the sky. Do you think the sun is out there reluctantly revealing the glory of God? Oh no. Do you think the stars are upset that they're advertising God's glory to the world? No way. They're stoked about it. The sun is like a bridegroom prancing through the sky. He's so happy. Like a strong man, he runs his course with joy. He's not limping across the finish line here. The sun has got many more miles left in him. And he does it joyfully. Do you understand how much of the world is meant to be discovered? I've mentioned this before, but you know that the sun is 400 times larger than the moon. The moon happens to be 400 times closer to us than the sun happens to be. There's no evolutionary reason for that. It's not like the moon evolved to be exactly proportionate to the sun and the distance from the earth. It just is that way exactly. Do you know what we learn from that? Just that little coincidental fact. I mean, the moon could be bigger. There's bigger moons. The sun could be bigger. There's bigger suns. Our earth could be further away or closer. There's planets further away and closer. No, everything is perfect. So that we learn that the earth is round because of a solar eclipse, perfect solar eclipse where it's blocked out perfectly by the moon. We learn the sun has a, a cornea in it. We learn the makeup of the sun that allows us to see the light rays that, that wouldn't be a corona. We can see the light rays that wouldn't otherwise be visible. We learn that Einstein's theory of relativity works because light bends around the moon from the eclipse. All of the stuff we learn from a corona to a, a light bending to relativity to all of these things. Why? Because God wants us to discover him. Your eyes can see the light spectrum that the sun produces and the atmosphere lets into the earth. There's no reason for that. There's no reason for that. It's not like your eyes could have evolved to see another light spectrum. And it's not like the light that the sun lets off happens to be what eyes would later on evolve to see. It doesn't work that way. But God does that so that you can see the world and see the sun and learn science. He wants to be discovered. Verse six, this rising is from the heavens, speaking of the sun. It's circuit to the end of them. You know, there's, for thousands of years, nobody knew what that verse meant. It wasn't until the last hundred years or so, we figure out, you know what? The sun is running a course through the galaxy. The sun is moving 515,000 miles an hour right now. 
the sun is moving through the galaxy, trucking along, pulling all the planets with it. It's not just planets moving around the sun. The sun is running its course literally through the galaxy, dragging us with it. And David knew that. The Holy Spirit knew that. The sun has a circuit and it's on it. This is the nature of common grace. But as incredible as common grace is, and the point is that all education takes place in this world. All education takes place in teaching people to connect the dots to what they see in the world back to common grace, back to God's nature. But common grace doesn't save anybody. Nobody looks at a sunset and says, whoa, I need to get saved. <laughs> common grace gives us rain. It gives us food. Duck donuts is good. Don't get me wrong. But nobody has eaten that maple with bacon duck donut and said, I need to go get baptized. I convert. <laughs> that would be a right response to the experience for sure. You wouldn't be wrong. It just doesn't happen that way because common grace can't save you. That leads to the second kind of grace, saving grace. Notice the hard contrast here in the Psalm. We go from common grace to saving grace. Verse seven, Yahweh's law is perfect, reviving the soul. Unlike common grace, which doesn't make a soul alive, Yahweh's law, the word of God, scripture actually saves people. That word revive means to give life to a dead thing. Something's dead, CPR comes to life. I know CPR doesn't work like that, but God's word works like that. You're spiritually dead and God's word makes you alive. A sunset doesn't do that. Common grace never saves, but listen to me carefully. Common grace never saves, but special grace always saves always saves. If you have an encounter with God's special grace, the result of that is your salvation. That's what verse seven is saying. You encounter Yahweh's perfect law, you come to faith. Your soul comes alive. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. Now there's a moral component. This is critical to understand in education. Wisdom has a moral component. You can be a highly educated PhD and be a fool in Bible terms. When the Bible uses the term wisdom, it's a moral term. It's reserved for those who know the law of the Lord. And this is what the law of the Lord does. It can make the wise, and that word means naive or the foolish. It can make the, uh, the simple, that word means naive or foolish. It can make the simple person intelligent. Wise, biblically wise. Verse eight, the precepts of Yahweh are right and they rejoice your heart. When you come across God's word, your heart is happy. That's the supernatural effect of God's word. It makes your heart happy. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens your eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, endures forever. Notice those two together. Because of Yahweh's commandment is so pure, it, your eyes see it. This is spiritual. It's speaking the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to understand God's word. The fear of Yahweh is clean. It endures forever. The sun will fail. The stars will fall. The earth will be melted, but the word of the Yahweh will, the word of the Lord of Yahweh will last forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. Remember that God's holiness does not come, it's not external. God doesn't conform to external standards. God's holiness is inside of him. Things are sinful because they're against God's nature. And so that's eternal. It's righteous altogether forever. Verse 10, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
there is eternal reward in studying the word of God. Eternal reward. Because you learn about nature, you learn about common grace the right way and then you get saved through his written word and you grow forever. The word of God revives you. Take, put it all together. It revives you, educates you, rejoices you, enlightens you, endures forever and sanctifies you. That's what special grace does. Well, there's a third category, not really category of grace, a third component here of grace and that's your response to grace. Your response to grace. Common grace, you see that by looking at the world. You want to know more about common grace? Study the world. You want to know more about special grace? Study the Bible. You want to know more about your need for grace? Look to the Savior. And that's where David ends. This Psalm 19 is just a perfect, it's like the whole Bible melted down to short Psalm. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So David here says, in light of this incredible world, I don't want to keep sinning. I don't want to fall into sin. This world is so incredible. God is so gracious in revealing himself to us. His word is so powerful in changing our hearts. I don't want to sin. David says, I know I've got sins I don't even know about. I am guilty of sins that I don't even, I don't even know them right now. I don't know. And you're, this is true in your life too. You have sins in your life right now that are big time sins that you are unaware of. 10 years from now, when you have more maturity, you'll look back at the you that's sitting here right now and go, I can't believe I was sinning in that way. Ugh. This is David's experience. And he says, I don't want to sin like that. Lord, use your word to reveal them to me. Let them not have dominion over me, he says in verse 13. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David knows that there's a righteousness that comes through God's special grace. And he wants it. It takes away his sin. There's forgiveness here. Do you see David's talking about salvation? He says, I want my sins removed from me. And then he ends with this little prayer. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Yahweh, my rock. And it closes out. And my redeemer. This is where David ends. God is more than a revealer. He's more than gracious by nature, although he is that. He gives his common grace to the world. He gives his special grace to the world. It's all because at the center of who God is, he is a savior. God is a redeemer. And it all comes into focus at the cross. As impressive as common grace is, as powerful as special grace is, they come into focus in the person of Jesus Christ, crucified for sin, resurrected on the third day. And so in a very real sense, the cross hangs over all of education. The cross hangs over all of classroom instruction. The cross hangs over everything you learn about God. Because even as you're learning about God and his beauty, God and his powerful common grace, you can't know God apart from knowing Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful that you are the savior who's come to the world to reveal yourself. We're thankful for your power in creation. We're thankful for the way you made the world, that you can be discovered in the world, that we learn about you by studying the world. But we learn who you are by looking at the word of God. And we know you most of all through your incarnation. It's your savior, you are a redeemer. 
Lord, I pray for echoing the prayers we did earlier. I pray for the students and teachers here. I pray that you would bless their ministry, bless their time at school. For those in non-Christian environments, I pray that you would use the things that they are learning there to build up their mind on common grace, to teach them more about your power and your beauty through the world. Pray for our teachers and students here at ICS. Thankful for the wonderful union of this whole psalm where there's no distinction in the classroom between common grace and special grace, where your power is overall. I'm thankful for them. And pray for the homeschooling students and parents here. Pray that every day would be an opportunity for them to learn more about you and your beauty, knowing that over everything, you are our redeemer. Lord, we're grateful that you are a savior. We learn this through your word. It's proved through the world. We're grateful for you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.